Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Last Line is a completely free podcast that takes a lot of time, effort and hard work to make happen. So if you'd like to support the show, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line. Thank you. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good whatever time you're listening to this podcast. My name is James Alban and you are listening to episode 19 of The Last Line. A uh, bit different this week, we have a double header, um, part one and part two. Um, part one will be going out at the start of this week, part two at the end of this week. But who am I talking to? Well, you already know if you clicked on this podcast, it's none other than Richard Porter. Uh, car journalist, uh, script editor for Top Gear and the Grand Tour, author of the book and on that bombshell inside the madness and genius of Top Gear, which gives a behind-the-scenes look at the show's production for the last for the 13 years that it was on air. Um, he really doesn't pull any punches either about what worked, what didn't, um, what went on behind the scenes, some of the controversies. Uh, that surrounded the show over the years. Uh, he also has a new book out uh, called How to Be Formula One Champion, which is the first and only practical guide on how to become an F1 champion for the millions of Grand Prix fans who have always dreamed of making it onto the podium. Richard, of course, is also the founder of Sniff Petrol, the online motoring magazine slash blog, and is the co-creator of Smith and Sniff, which uh, is a YouTube series in which Richard and fellow car journalist Johnny Smith review cars and talk about well, what's ever on their mind, really. But it's fantastic. It's fantastic watching, and you should all go and check it out. Um, and it's what we sort of start uh, talking about um, as you'll hear when we get to the conversation. So, why is this week's conversation in two parts? Great question. It's because me and Richard recorded for about nearly three hours. Um, And usually I record for about an hour, and then you basically hear pretty much what's gone out, what's happened in that hour. Um, And I try to keep the podcasts to around an hour so that it's easy for people on commutes that don't have to pick up a three-hour podcast so i didn't want to cut any of our conversation um but i also didn't want to put out an hour-long podcast so therefore for the series finale we have a two-parter so without further ado this is richard porter Hit record on my phone uh, as a yeah. backup. 
Which I've never done before. Uh, Have you had any disasters? No, I've had one instance where... I probably shouldn't tell you this at the start of doing a podcast with you, because it doesn't doesn't really... um, It's not great for trust, is it? Um, But um, It's fine. I, I do a podcast with a couple of mates, and we've done it for years, and we've had... It's only happened once or twice where it's the classic uh, hitting record, but it was already recording. So what you've just done is turn the machine off oh, that's... and then talk for half an hour and at the end of it go, oh, yeah, oh, it, oh, it wasn't on. Um, which was not my, it's not my job to push the button on the machine. It's my friend Gareth, so it's always his fault. Right. He's always the one who has to fall on his sword and apologise. But it's, it's just, yeah. I had, I had one... Heartbreaking. Um, where I'd done a whole interview and then when I got home I realised that my mic hadn't recorded mm. okay so it was fine because I still had like the key person involved yeah could you you could drop yourself in perhaps and I, so I could it. luckily I could hear myself on his mic but obviously if I boosted myself on his mic it sounded mm. horrible so I just yeah, I just re-recorded all my lines that I had said in the same intonation yeah. and, like, dropped them in. Mm. But it was a bit of a... Yeah, you can't... It's difficult to go back to people and go, hi, oh, you know that interview you did? Could we do it all again? Yeah. And could you make sure it's as good as last time as well? Because I really enjoyed it. It's just I forgot to record it. I'm yeah. so sorry. So, and then I was listening on the way to, um, to you on a podcast... Uh, I think it was like called the Smoking Tire or something. Oh yeah, the American one. Yeah, yeah, I've and, done that a couple of times. And you were talking about, I think, because I listened to the second time you were on it before. I listened to the first time you were on it because I didn't know oh, right. you been on it twice. Yes. So I listened to the first time you've been on the way here. Okay. And um, you were talking about when you were taking, you got given a set of tapes once. Oh, to take on the tube. Yeah. Yeah. And that sort of nerve-wracking horror. Yeah. No, I didn't lose the tapes, but I fucking hated it. I used to go out of my way. I think I've probably said this on the smoking tire. I did, after that, used to go out of my way to avoid any responsibility <laughs> for tapes because it's just too stressful. I can't... I can't think of anything. Because I can't even imagine how sick you would feel when you realised you'd lost the tapes because yeah. you would have to go back... Well. You'd have to go back and shoot it all again. It may be impossible to do. I that. had that experience, like my again, not a great thing to tell you about my competency levels, but I had, uh, I was on like my first shoot for the creative agency I used to work at, mm. um, and, and if they're listening to this, I'm not sure they even know this because I sort of covered, but that's fine. Um, I'd lost. I was responsible on set for like transferring the footage on the cards onto a hard drive on the set Mm. got back to the office the next day and had realized i'd copied the same card twice Mm. and i was like well it'll be fine because the camera guy will still have it so i'll call him Mm. and he's i called him and he'd literally wiped that card five minutes before can you see my body language goes all (laughs) a bit like twitchy because it just makes me because i've have been there i've been there uh, not for sort of pro telly, but like I do a little YouTube thing with my mm. mate Johnny and I uh, manage the rushes generally because Johnny lives in the sticks. That's what my laptop's doing over there at the moment. Yeah. It's we transferring some rushes to right. our editor, which takes forever. But it takes even longer for Johnny because he lives in the sticks and his internet's pretty weak. And I 
hate it as a job. I absolutely hate it because I, I don't think I have an ordered mind enough. To no, the whole sort of I'm not particularly. Yeah, I'm not particularly organised with like files and. It's and it is that thing of accidentally duping a file, you know, that because they've got similar names because yeah. it's all like sort of zero eight oh five underscore four nine two one underscore something, and you just go, oh god, I can't. Now Especially if you're off. shooting multiple cards as well, because often they'll just because it will be the same. It'll be the same numbers because yeah, it's like card two and card three, and it'll be like one two three four five one two three four five. Yeah. So you just go, that looks about right, and then yeah, from then on, I was always like. Right, transfer a card, put it into Premiere, check, you've got everything. Right, yeah. then... D- just back just. up and back up again. Oh, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I don't, you know, because one of the weird things about... The, well, it's not weird, it's just the way that things have gone, but, you know, the, the evolution of the way TV's made, that uh, you've always got at least one dit on a shoot yeah. to back everything up. And I was just thinking, that looks like my idea of a nightmare job <laughs> yeah. responsible for fucking little cards as well yeah. where's it gone oh I've dropped which we always do when we do our YouTube things we do it around cars so we're always filming in cars and, and pretty much every time we film we drop a memory card down the side of a seat in a car and you know they're yeah. very hard to get out again of a lot of modern cars because they've got electric seats so there's a whole mechanism yeah. you've got to pull basically a little fingernail clipping out of and it's horrific I couldn't I just couldn't think of anything worse than picking a dit. Imagine picking a dit on a Bond movie. Oh. Go, right, we've done the stunt, one shot deal. Have you got the cards? Uh, oh. ooh, I left them <laughs> over there on that tray that's just been thrown in the bin. No, I, defi- I definitely co- copied them across. I definitely, I definitely, definitely. I, look, I can remember what happened. What if I drew a picture? <laughs> it's awful. Just yeah, it makes me makes me feel sort of slightly goose pimply just thinking about the horrors of losing <laughs> rushes from increasingly expensive film shoots. But anyway, how did um, the is it Smith and Sniff or Sniff and Smith? It's Smith and Sniff. Right, it's our YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been watching a lot of them. Oh, have you? Yeah. Oh, okay, I apologise. I wouldn't watch too many at once. We had a guy in the comments last week I think went just discovered this channel and I've been watching them back to back for the last two days and I was like stop you must stop now this will rot your brain it's just two men talking rubbish go to the pub with your friends you'll achieve the same effect which is partly why I think uh, people like what we do not many people mm. I mean we've just ticked over 10,000 subscribers which is okay you know yeah. but it's sort of I think we look slightly enviously at people like uh, Harry Metcalf, who I used to work for at Evo Magazine, does does his sort of, it's called Harry's Garage, where he, he just looks around his collection yeah. of cars and things. And I, I can't remember what he's doing now, numbers-wise, but, you know, he sort of seems to be the gold standard of this little corner of the internet, which is unashamed car nerdery, yeah. you know, because Harry's not embarrassed to go, let's get the bonnet up. Now... The interesting thing about these carburettors <laughs> is, and, and at no point does he go, I'm sorry, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm probably going on a bit, because he knows yeah. that he's got an audience which is certainly bigger than ours that's still staying with him on that, because they want the information. Yeah. They actually like the fact, I mean, I sort of feel partially responsible for this in a way, that Top Gear sort of, in its pomp, when we were doing it with Clarkson, Hammond and May, we took more and more information out of the show to make mm. room for people's trousers falling down and explosions and things. And, and I think probably there's a section of people who are into cars enough. Right? Yeah. They're, they're actually hungry for information that isn't there in, in sort of mainstream car telly. Um, and so they'll seek out videos on the internet. 
and there are quite a few of them. I mean, you know, and there's obviously there's all the sort of influences, you know, the kind of blokes who are buying Lamborghinis and. Yeah, there's all sorts of weird videos about uh, of the um, guys who don't own any cars, but just like spot cars. Yeah, I don't. Is and that like, still going on? And then on? like stand by them. Mm. That used to be. I thought that was more of a thing, sort of five. I mean, six maybe years is, ago, because it used to be. The classic was, you'd, I guess, they'd sort of go down to Kensington on Knightsbridge in West London, and then just yeah. and there'd be a load of Lamborghinis with yeah. um, sort of United Arab Emirates plates. Yeah, because all the people outside. who come over to summer in London because mm. it's too hot in UAE or, or Dubai or wherever they um, they bring their cars over mm. and then just rag them around, <laughs> round and round Harrods, basically <laughs> treating Harrods like a sort of racetrack and. Uh, yeah, and that used to be the, the thing, wasn't it? The sort of well-spoken blokes behind the camera yeah. going, oh, look, it's Novantador. And that, <laughs> was, that was sort of the new frontier of car YouTube. And I think, I think it's evolved now. I think there's that guy, Shmee, who is now you know, in front of camera and mm. does a lot of videos. And I think that's where he started. He, he just used to go and shoot supercars on the street. Right. And then he started buying his own. Um, it's quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say there's a business model. I don't think it is a business model. <laughs> Um, I think people were sort of lured into this belief that maybe it was and that people were getting hugely rich off YouTube. And I don't yeah. know that anyone particularly did, really. They certainly don't now, do they? It's like there's nothing, there's nothing much in YouTube unless you're, you know... I think unless, yeah, unless you started... Of billions of Yeah, views. and started when it started and yeah. grew with it. It's weird, it's weird how you say like 10,000 is like good but it still feels kind of small on the internet uh, so I, as I say that I realise it sounds stupid because ten, it, I don't yeah. know 10,000 people exactly. that's a lot of I was, people because I was thinking about this the other day because I think the I've got a couple of my films on YouTube and one of them is like a short documentary and it was about a, a YouTuber who'd sort of like got into some controversy and stuff mm. so I just um, but it because he was in it it got about it's got like 30,000 views at this point because the YouTuber gave you the sort of because like boost, just you know. people would just click on it because his face was in it. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, but and it would come up if you searched him, it would come up like right. the second yeah. thing on the thing. Um, which I don't know how happy he would be about that. But um, the it's an interesting technique. I might try that more often. Yeah. <laughs> just put a picture of like. I don't know. I was going to say the Duke of Edinburgh, and of course that's no, that's no good at all. I don't think people who look on YouTube are going, I hope there's more Duke of Edinburgh content out there. Can't get enough of the old DOE. But, you know, put a picture of like Mariah Carey naked as the title of the video, yeah. and then people click on it and go, oh, God, it's just two silly old twats talking in a car. There is a guy who's like, you know these like van lifers who go and live in their vans? Oh, yes. They've like converted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but the usually sort of like Instagram model looking sort of yeah. women in bikinis a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. There's this guy called, he's called like Dave2D or something. And he's like a van life guy. So he lives in his van. Mm -hmm. But he's the most sort of sarcastic and bitter person <laughs> about all the other van life people. Oh, okay. So he'll, you know, he'll he'll sort of critique these van life videos where there's these sort of Instagram models running around their 
in their tiny bikinis is, and you go, well, we all know you have to shit in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> but is that also because he's someone who has to live in a van because life hasn't quite gone the way he planned rather than a lifestyle choice <laughs> of living know, in a van where he could just go back to his parents' <laughs> mansion in Bel Air or something if he wanted to. But he, he he's like, he's discovered this thing with like the YouTube algorithm that he, he just puts, um, he, he, he'll have his like TV hooked up to his like Alexa in his van okay. or whatever and he'll just ask like Alexa show me videos of bouncing boobies and then there'll be like models in it but it will do better on YouTube because he's got that oh in the background while he's talking really? but then he gets distracted because he starts then watching the it's quite, it's quite funny <laughs> <laughs> so really the next time that we're filming for YouTube if we just put a still frame of I don't know Love Island in mm. the background that might game the algorithm beyond he also got loads of views because he'd done one video where he made a joke about French construction workers. Right. And then, and it was like years ago, but then he suddenly got l- like loads of views on that video when um, Notre Dame started burning down oh. because people were searching for like French construction workers or whatever. <laughs> Why would they? For some do? reason. But he would, he got so many. So now he always like name checks French construction workers in his videos <laughs> as well. Um, what was the point I was getting at? Yeah, but like 30, so 30,000 views still sounds quite small on like yeah. YouTube thing. But then yeah. I go, 30, that's a lot of people. If 30,000 people turned up to a gig, you'd be like, yeah. this is amazing. If there were 30,000 people in this room, we suffocate I mean admittedly like probably half of it is probably just my dad re-watching it but yeah maybe and I don't know are they I, I, I actually don't, don't know, know this. are there bots that are doing this on YouTube the same way that you know sort of other social media channels sort of prey Potentially. to robots and all sorts sort of, sort of things like deflating my dreams at oh, don't worry <laughs> I, I, I'll be really happy with 30,000 I mean our, our videos usually sort of they, they rocket up to about about 5,000 now we probably do in the first week for an yeah. average video but then it plateaus spectacularly and eventually it'll sort of crawl and creep up to maybe 10,000 which you know 10,000 is a lot of views if yeah. those are genuine and I don't think you can ask for much more I think there's probably depending on what you're doing on YouTube there's always going to be a ceiling on your format mm. and I think our ceiling is about there it's never going to really sort of cut through in the way that I don't know. I mean, it's always, I, I suppose it's, I, I think middle-aged men talking about cars is probably an increasingly unfashionable avenue to pursue compared to like you know, gaming and stuff that's big on YouTube. I don't know. Yeah. I but then, but know. then, but, but then would you have said at like at the start of, was it when, when, when you, when Top Gear was brought back, was there ever, I mean, obviously you couldn't have like anticipated that it would be like the massive, like no, nation, not at all. Like no. worldwide thing, it was. But was there was there a thought that like people would want to watch it, or were you sort of all unsure whether actually like are oh, is it, like you said, is middle aged men talking about cars unfashionable? It was probably less unfashionable in when was that two thousand and two? Yeah, but I think we probably just wanted to make a decentish show, the best show that we could make, and. Mm hope that it was I can't remember what our our sort of hopes and dreams were in terms of viewing figures also you know it was uh, 17 years ago pre-Netflix pre-video on demand of any sort and people did used to just watch telly 
And so viewing figures would be uh, a bit higher. I think we sort of thought we'd be happy with 2 million, but that right. was actually quite lowly back then. Mm. And we ended up sort of, what were we doing in the UK? Seven or eight, maybe. I think we got to nine for the episode after Richard had his accident. And, mm. you know, those were pretty solid numbers. You know, it's sort of anything that got into double digits was sort of X Factor or probably some of the soaps on, on a good run. And um, so, yeah, I think we set our ceiling at two million because we thought, you know, any more would just be silly. There's not mm. that many people who want to want to watch these you know, these things about cars. And also when we started, it really was about cars. I apologise for my dog. <laughs> Sorry. She's a total attention seeker. <laughs> it's as if she never gets any attention here at all, when in fact she gets loads, don't you? Yes. Um, yeah, we didn't, I don't think that's thing. We did, I, 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 our ambitions weren't that lofty, I know that, because we mm. just thought, well, we'll do the best job we can because there seems to be, you know, room in the world for... And it's on BBC Two. There's a funny sort of psychological thing about the difference between BBC Two and BBC One. It's like you're allowed to be a little more obscure on BBC Two, a little more niche interest. Mm. Uh, and the viewing figures are naturally lower on BBC Two. And funny enough, later on when Top Gear became more successful, we there were some vague rumblings within the beef that we might get moved onto BBC One. Right. And we always fought it because on the logic that... Although it's a great mark of, you know, you, you've become mainstream, you've mm. become big enough to go on BBC One and a lot of shows, you know, Have I Got News For You was originally a BBC Two show and I suppose quite a few comedy... Is it on, is it on BBC One now or is it on, still on BBC Two now? Uh, Top Gear's still on BBC Two. Right. That's the thing. I think we, we, we always fought it and I think it's now sort of accepted it's a BBC Two show. But we, we fought it because uh, I think we realised that because when you do become mainstream, if you get promoted, in inverted commas, to BBC One, there's no going back. Mm. When your ratings start to fall, you'll just be cancelled. Right. That's what happens to BBC One shows. They're the you know big league. Yeah. There's no room for failure. BBC Two, a little bit more leeway, a bit more flexibility. And it probably speaks to the, not cynicism, the scepticism and the, and the natural sort of fatalism of, of those of us who've worked on the show for a long time that we always assumed that we would at some point just go completely to cock and lose all our viewers and we didn't yeah. want to risk that. We, we thought we could probably soldier on on BBC Two for a bit longer in in our sort of waning, failing hours. They wouldn't cancel us straight away because Two's a bit more tolerant of these things. One, they'd just take us outside and shoot us immediately. <laughs> so that was, that was why I think we always sort of fall back against any promotion where a lot of shows would probably quite rightly go, oh, bloody hell, BBC One, you know, that's a big yeah. deal. That's when you know you've made it. If you're a BBC One show, you're flagship. That's great, yeah. I think it also it retains the... Because you're always like, the, we're the pokey little car show, even, yeah. though, even though we all knew you weren't. But it was that kind of... It was that kind yeah. of... Yeah, um, there's a sort of... Uh, I mean, I suppose self-deprecating... Uh, was part of the attitude of Top Gear. Mm. It was. It, it had to be the pokey motoring show. It's if we ever started to sort of really trumpet our achievements, then you know it meant we'd completely lost our minds. We had to always, and it extended to you know the way that we made the show. Molly, you do not need to go out. You've <laughs> just been out. Come over here. We can have the door open if you want. It's Would not, you? It's not gonna. It's not gonna. Um, I need to. I need to unclip my mic yeah. and just go and open the door. Sorry, bloody girl. Right. You just go in there. What is wrong with you? Oh, but I really need a wee. No, you don't.
uh, what were you just saying? Um, uh, yeah, oh yeah, so you know, being self-deprecating and all of that, it's just, it was all sort of part of the attitude of it. And, yeah. And, and when we made the show, we, you know, we were sort of in deliberately shabby offices and mm. we didn't for a long time spend any money there's a great TV cliche about you know all the money's on screen and, and I think it was very true for, for Top Gear because we didn't you know didn't go overboard on fancy hotels and things like that latterly it did I think it's probably why the show didn't I, I mean I was still quite proud of some of the stuff we did towards the end yeah. of our run but I do think there was a sort of heyday when we were just doing our best work and still surprising people mm. and it coincided with us staying in sort of hotels with unsightly stains on the carpet <laughs> and a funny smell in the bathroom and no real airs and graces and you know catering on a shoot was just one of the runners would go to a petrol station and just get the you know shelf mm. of manky sandwiches and just scrape it all into a basket <laughs> and then come back and a mountain of crisps and as we got a bit bigger and more successful the one thing that was acknowledged was that the presenters were now big stars and although they were never super starry they did start to just get spoiled a little bit right they got spoiled in fact by doing the top gear live shows getting, ah, okay. world, getting treated like rock stars yeah because the live show people who were not part of the bbc used to go is there anything you want and after a while they cottoned on and yeah. they would just go oh well actually yeah you know i really like hula hoops yeah. in James's case can I have some beef hula hoops please and they'd go well you know we are in the middle of nowhere in New Zealand but we'll get some and you know then they would they genuinely on uh, when they were in New Zealand doing the live show they were staying in this beautiful house on the coast I think I wasn't there for this but I've been told this story they staying out on the coast remote location and uh, they've got a helicopter to take them into Auckland to do the shows and then one evening I think I'm getting this right. Jeremy said, quite fancy playing Monopoly. I love a game of Monopoly now, which is a bizarre thing to say, but I really like Monopoly. Is there a Monopoly set in this house? And they looked around and went, no, there isn't. Don't worry, we'll go and get one. And they sent the helicopter to go and buy a Monopoly set. And he just go, even Mick Jagger would go, well, that's a bit excessive, isn't it? What are you doing? And it was that kind of thing where the live people didn't blink about right. that sort of stuff because they wanted, you know, they wanted the talent to be happy. Yeah. Uh, whereas we at the TV show for a long time were more of that slightly sort of puritanical BBC attitude of, well, we haven't got millions to spend, you know, come on, everyone's just got to pull their weight. We're all going to stay in this grotty hotel and we're all going to eat crisps together. And it was a little bit more, you know, uh, modest. And then gradually, just gradually, very creeping thing that I think the presenters got so sort of spoiled by the live people, they started coming back to the telly show and going... Next time we go on a shoot, um, can you make sure that uh, we've got plenty of cans of Fanta or something? Or you know that I only drink Diet Coke. And it's, and it's like, okay, yeah, all right, calm down, Mariah. And then, yeah, th- that, but just enough. They were just getting enough of a taste of, of being treated nicely, which, you know, they were talent, they were stars, they are stars, you know. Mm. It's sort of not unreasonable. I think if we'd been at... Um, so imagine if we'd been an American broadcaster, they'd have been treated like that from the off. Yeah. Because that's what they do. And they'd have been credited as executive producers. And I went on uh, a shoot in the US for a US show once. And I was staggered that everyone got given per diems 
You know, you get a, yeah, a yeah. winter cash for the day. That's your spending money. You're what Australians would call your walking around money. Yeah. And I was like, we're getting given cash. Just this is not coming out of our pay packets. This is this is just cash money that you get for being for, here. For being here <laughs> yeah. in the middle of nowhere in the California desert, where you couldn't then walk to a shop and go and buy something. I mean, I think I ended up giving my money to one of the runners to go and buy me some bags or something. <laughs> um, it was. It was astonishing to me that you just got actual cash money mm. just for being there, uh, as well as your pay, because that none of that went on in in our world at the Beeb. It was all quite modest. So when you've moved to the Grand Tour now, have, have you lost any? Have you lost that sort of? It's a bit more. It's, it's a bit, a bit more, more lavish. Grand, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I don't want to make out that that it's you know exactly sort of. Hollywood movie spec but yeah. I suppose it's just there are some some harsh realities that come with it which are all the reasons why things are maybe a little bit better catered and things and part of it is that the presenters are getting old and tired <laughs> and so and also of course with the Grand Tour it's made by their production company so technically it's their money Yeah. so if they say can we make sure that we stay in a nice hotel that night that we're yeah, we finished driving across the desert because we'll all want to shower. Which is fair enough. Which is fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. In the BBC days, you know, there'd have been a lot of, well, the only hotel, I mean, it's £107 a night. That's probably more than we're allowed to spend under BBC rules. So mm. we've put you in the Lithuanian equivalent of a travel lodge. Uh, apparently, uh, it's reopened since the murder, so you'd be fine. <laughs> and, and we would all sort of suck it up. And there has been a little bit now of an acknowledgement that Three old money, and it's their money. They can do what they want, and so the hotels got a bit nicer. And uh, one of the changes, and it's again, it's an entirely practical one. You know, they have a PA now. Mm. And it's shared between the three of them, and it's someone who usually does other stuff, you know, on, on the team. But what it means is you've got someone who is just there to look after them, um, because on a shoe, the director's busy directing stuff, yeah. liaising with the film crews, and the runners and researchers and the producers are all probably thinking ahead to what's going to happen next, what they need to do, anything that pops up, you know, a car's broken down, right, what do we do next? Is it fixable in the field? And all this sort of stuff. They've always got something on and the presenters often find themselves just standing around. Mm. You know, it's why uh, they all used to smoke, as a lot of people in TV used to do. And it's, um, part of anything else, it's just a boredom reflex. Mm. So much standing around on shoots, as you know. And, and, um, and these days, uh, they don't smoke, and they have someone who's there who can at least go. Would you like a, a can okay, of pop? Hula hoops. Yeah. yeah. Would you like a packet of hula hoops? Still hula hoops. Still hula hoops. And uh, yeah, that's. It's just reminded me as well. There's a great story about James May, who, you know, as you'd imagine from his on-screen persona, is a sort of mild-mannered sort of mm. bloke, and he really is. And they started, when they realised that the people who put on the Tokyo Live shows were spoiling them and would know nothing was too much trouble, once they, they realised they would send a helicopter to go and buy a board game because of an idle remark that one of them made, they started to take the piss a little bit. And on one occasion, they, uh, a radio message came through to the man who was in charge of the whole live experience and owned the company that made it in a stadium in South Africa. And he was at one end of the stadium and the presenter's dressing room was at the other end of the stadium. 
and he got this radio message, you need to come now. A fight's breaking out. James and Jeremy are fighting. It's terrible. You've got to come quickly. I'm not playing fetch with you now. Dog, <laughs> get your own podcast. Um, and so this guy, who was quite a portly man, ran in South African summer heat, the full length of this stadium, the corridors underneath mm. it, arrived in their dressing room, ruddy-faced and sweating, to find, to find James May standing there. And, and he went, what? what's the problem? And James went, Jeremy stamped on my hula hoops. <laughs> and there was a crushed packet of hula hoops on the floor. And Jeremy was standing there going, yes, I did, because James was being annoying. And then sat down again. And they were just messing with him. Right. They were just winding up to see if they could make this guy who owns the yeah. whole company come to their back and call <laughs> on a tiny matter so they got the security guard to, to radio him just because Jeremy had stamped on some Chris Molly you need to wind your doggy neck in okay you're trouble don't bark I don't know why I do this I always tell the dog not to bark as if the dog can understand me it's ridiculous I sometimes I've been caught in public like the dog she doesn't like getting in cars particularly and, and you have to encourage her slash lift her, which is always a bit mm. into cars. But um, I remember once I was trying to get to go into the back of a, of a car, also because I borrow cars through work, so I think it's unfamiliar cars freak her out. Mole, I will take that ball away from you. <laughs> Honestly. The ball's, I don't even know where the ball's no, gone no, now. Well, that'll now lead to a problem because you'll get all stressed out that she's yeah. lost her ball. You're an idiot. <laughs> yeah, I was once trying to get her to get into an unfamiliar car and she was just refusing. And I... I basically sort of in, a, in an angry stage whisper went look stop being a dick about this and then realised that there was someone walking past behind me uh, and I got so I got busted calling my own dog a dick it's here Mole look here's the ball this is not helpful take it away go I don't know why we have you on the team you, you're just a constant disappointment <laughs> the other one I got I, I sort of got busted in public as well going once again you've embarrassed me <laughs> which like like a sort of peevish married couple having an argument after a dinner party but because she I can't remember what she'd done look you can have this back but for God's sake just take it outside and stop bothering James because it's really annoying <laughs> just, I should have known I should have just picked a day when I could have oh. sent her away Mole seriously dude <laughs> You've put us in an untenable position here, Molly, now, with your dickishness. <laughs> Sorry, where were I don't have a clue. I'm not sure where we're now. Dogging Today podcast. No, no, actually, that sounds wrong. <laughs> Dog <laughs> management. I wonder if there are podcasts about dogging. Someone just sent me a link to... I bet there are, because there's podcasts about everything. Like Someone sent me a link today to a podcast. Like, I bet you'll like this. And it, it, it is about cattle management or something. But I think, actually, it's a comedy right. podcast. That's just the name of it. But I looked at it and went, why would they think I'd be interested in that? There is a co- podcast that comedian Richard Herring does. Where well he does a couple, he does his Leicester Square Theatre yeah, where yeah. he just interviews people. He also does like one where he plays snooker with himself. What? <laughs> it's like oh 
cats. <laughs> it's like called like me versus me snooker or something. It's like, and it, they, he's got like I don't know like, like, oh, oh, probably not an exaggeration to be like a hundred episodes of like, and like a running score of like him just playing it just him like saying, me one oh. versus me two snooker, <laughs> and he just like commentates what's happening. But then occasionally because he's doing it in his basement. Right. Occasionally, his wife will come down, and and you'll hear her just like give her him the most withering sort of like, "Why are, are you, you doing, doing this, this again?" again? <laughs> and there's also a, he, there's also one he does it's just him collecting stones or like moving stones. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there really is a podcast about everything. That's yeah. I can't remember what we were talking about now. We were talking oh. Um, yeah, James May, Hula Hoops. Yeah, so Hula Hoops and, and, and being spoiled. That's one thing I was going to ask you, actually, which is a, it's kind of a, it's probably like a Top Gear nerdy fan question, which is probably going to have a very boring answer. Probably. <laughs> but do you remember, well, you will remember because you wrote it, probably, the whole Dacia Sandero yeah. saga. Yeah, one of my favourite yeah. things. And I did, James and I used to come up with those and... Um, you know the setup of the I'm going to say gag in inverted commas because I don't ever think it was a it wasn't a gag it was a well I don't know I mean that's the thing it's sort of one of those things that's that's not funny but by but, repetition it's sort of you yeah. always force the issue until people go fine if I laugh will you stop doing this <laughs> um, but we used to have to every week I think some weeks they probably got cut out. Well, for one series at least, we tried to do it every week because the idea was, you know, running gags don't work unless you do them all the time. Yeah. And but but James and I used to get the Dacia Sandero press pack and sort of comb it for more <laughs> arcane details so that he could do the whole good news yeah. setup and then say something spectacularly boring. And I think it got to the point where we. Um, we had to ring Dacia and go, have you got any more information about the Sandero? <laughs> Which fortunately, they were really down with it. You know, they understood that what we were doing. They were like, you keep mentioning our car on the TV, yeah. so, you know, we're not going to try and stop you. And they, um, yeah, they sent us over some more information. Or well, I think they might have even had to contact their head office in France and go, or, or, or in Romania and go, um, could, you, could you translate some more facts about the Sandero <laughs> for us? Because it's a long story. We won't try and explain. There's a TV show here that's doing something a bit silly, but it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. The one thing that really confused me was when the adverts came out and they were pronouncing it Dacia. Yeah. That's one of those things. It's very hard to know um, because Dacia is how they say it in Romania. So that is the correct right. way of saying it. But at the same time, I suppose you can accept that sometimes we anglicise things, uh, yeah. and you know we wouldn't go. Oh, I'm just off to get the Eurostar to Paris because that would sound pretentious. You yeah. can say Paris. That's the Although some people do do that. Some people do do Especially, that. Especially, but it's only French that I have a problem with people doing. Ooh, what about Italian though? Oh, that's a good point. Think about people ordering in Italian restaurants and they'll put a sort of massive flourish on things like, oh, I will have the penne uh, <laughs> riata. You go, why are you saying it like that? You're not Italian. But uh, you wouldn't go to a Japanese restaurant well, and, uh, and do the same thing with a katsu curry. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. yeah. Why are you doing a Japanese accent? That's actually quite offensive what you're doing there. Um, no, so yes, Dacia is the proper pronunciation, but unfortunately by then we'd already gone down the Dacia route. You know, yeah. in the same way, there's actually quite a lot of car companies where the, the, the you know, their 
correct pronunciation from their native country is not the way yeah. we would say it. Right down to Persia, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, Dacia, I think they did try to say to us, it should be pronounced Dacia. And we went, well, it's too late now. We yeah. can't. Please don't, don't try and push this one. Because it, also things like that, you know, it, Jeremy, as the mischief maker in chief, used to catch on to stuff like that. And then he would, he would deliberately, you know, do the wrong, do, do yeah. the wrong thing. Uh, again, when they were doing the live show, they used to have this flying car thing. It was basically a big sort of blimp that was car shaped. And, um, in fact, this wasn't. This was Richard Hammond, also a man who likes mischief. He had to say, oh, "Isn't that amazing? It's actually it's a flying car. You know that was that's been built specially. It's a one-off. It's worth over two hundred thousand pounds." And afterwards, the guy who built it came and went, oh, "It's not actually worth two hundred thousand pounds. It, it, it's worth about fifty thousand pounds." And rather than go, "Oh God, okay, sorry, I'll get that right next time," because he used to do you know yeah. sort of seven shows in a row, Hammond just went. And it's worth four hundred thousand pounds. <laughs> yeah. The guy came back. No, I told you it's only worth fifty thousand pounds. Oh, I'm so sorry, I got it wrong again, didn't I? Next show. Ah, it's amazing, isn't it? And it's worth over two billion pounds. <laughs> he just kept, the more the man pointed out, the higher the number went. Um, just out of sheer childish bloody-mindedness yeah. to be silly, which was something that I think underpinned an awful lot of what we did. Mm. Which, as I'm saying it, I think, God, that sounds so petty and infantile, <laughs> but that was also what, what, what underpinned the show. So my question about the Dacia thing... Oh, sorry, yeah. That's all right. Was the... Um, the, the kind of the whole joke sort of ended with he got presented with one. Yes. That it was like as if it was his Dacia Sandero yeah, and yeah. then it got crushed by, I think it was like by a truck or yeah, something. Yeah, I think a lorry reversed into it. But it? I remember watching it at the time and thinking he looked genuinely like sort of crushed yeah. and angry. I and I didn't he... know if he knew, obviously it was set up, but like whether he knew beforehand. I think he must have known it was set up. I, I suspect... I can't remember, but I would suspect very strongly that he'd driven the car by then. He loves cars like that, simple, cheap cars. So he'd slightly fallen in love with the car, and that's why it pained him to... He probably, knowing James as well, because at that point you couldn't get the Sandero in Britain. Right. And he was probably thinking... I can keep that. I can keep this because the production's bought it. Yeah. And I can just take it back to Hammersmith and I can drive around in it and he'll be really happy with that. And then the realisation that it was going to be written off by a lorry, it yeah. probably, probably did make him... I can't remember his face there, but uh, if he looked genuinely quite crestfallen, you know, they're, they're not that good at actors, you know. But... Well, that was the thing. He was, like, so convincingly, like, angry yeah. that it just looked like... It looked like it wasn't one of those things where... I, I suspect that's it. James had, had become quite fond of the car mm. and as a, you know, a man who loves cars and has also, more than the other two, has a sort of mechanical sympathy and doesn't like wanton destruction very much. It probably did genuinely pain him. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, probably out of all of them, he's the one who's bought the most... Uh, cars that we used on the show. Actually, right. I'm trying to think now because they've all bought cars at various points we used on the show. But he's probably probably bought oh God, two or three. I mean, Hammond bought a few as well. They have they both have a bit of a disease where they can't stop buying cars. And, mm. um, 
So yeah, he's he does think he gets attached to cars. So I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure the pain is real. <laughs> um, the, there's a, there's a chapter in your book where you talk about like um, the sort of frustration with people saying, "Oh, it's scripted," when yeah. it's like, if a, yes, clearly because everything is scripted in some way yeah. on television. Yeah. Um, and I just sort of wanted to like ask you about that. Really. Well, I know what people mean. Yeah. When they go, oh, it was too scripted. It, it's, a, it's a synonym for too set up. Yeah. And I don't think people object to that per se. I mean, for example, you remember we did a thing with the Reliant Robin where Jeremy drove around Yorkshire and kept falling <laughs> over. And I loved that film. And I thought we got away with it because we didn't ask people to believe it was real. Right. We just said, you know, it was quite obvious from the off, this is all a setup. It's a yeah. bit of a gag. What we did do, we we're very careful about this, was there was actual information in there. No one remembers right. it, I'm sure, but if you go back and watch that film, you will learn some stuff about the Reliant Robin and, and it's, its heyday in the 70s yeah. and why it sold and all this sort of stuff. It's a bit like there was that film where you, I, I can't remember, I think, I don't know if it was about caravanners, but you were like, or it was the type of people that would buy a specific car and you, you sort of kept buying stuff and then like and throwing, throwing it away. Skip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that, in terms of sort of the, if you like, purity of the concept, I think the Reliant one was fine because although there was information, it, it, it was the information was tucked in there like you put medicine into yeah. dog's food. It's hidden, but it's hopefully doing something. You know, people, uh, people it, it, it gives a substance to it so that, actually you kind of go this wasn't just mucking around if you really wanted to know when did the Reliant Robin go on sale something like that it was in there somewhere I'm sure mm. um, but we were also inviting you just to take your brain out pop it on the coffee table and just sit back and enjoy this it's basically arsing around whereas those caravanning things you know that was actually sort of arsing around thinly pretending to be consumer journalism right because we were trying to find the best of those cars mm. Which I suppose at the end we sort of picked a winner, but at the same time, you know, that, that, when, they, when they just kept buying things and then immediately throwing them away. It, I, that's one of those sort of classic things that Clarkson liked to do, which is it's sort of observational in the mm. same way he would do it in his newspaper columns. He's making an observation, something he spotted, that yeah. people with those kind of cars seem to be constantly at the recycling centre. You know, there's some truth in it, I guess. And, but then what we were doing is sort of making a low-quality comedy sketch, really. And it's fine. I think we got away with it. Mm. But that was a bit more of a mismatch because it's like, on the one hand, we're trying to tell you which of these quite popular types of car is best. And on the other hand, we're just dicking about. Mm. So, but in terms of the scripted thing, so I, 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 it used to frustrate me just because that's the thing. I think people used to mistake things that were very heavily contrived in as much as we'd sort of planned them. People used to think they were sort of spontaneous bits, and then they'd, they'd alight on things that were actually sort of fairly unplanned. Something had happened on location, and go, "Oh, it's also set up and scripted." And so, I suppose my objection really is just it's felt a little unfair in the uh, and frustrating because you're sort of like you don't understand, you don't understand how this works. But when I mean, I saw it this week um, after the, uh, the the new series of Top Gear started, mm. the new one with uh, Freddie Flintoff and. Um, Paddy McGuinness and I saw somebody on Twitter going at last isn't this what we've been asking for for ages proper unscripted entertainment and I was like <laughs> I, I just wanted to go and, and I you know for the record I thought that the new Top Gear was really good right. and there is 
a lot in there that is clearly off the cuff yeah. and you know in that first episode there's a fantastic bit it made me laugh out loud it's such a small thing but um, Flintoff loses patience with the timed challenge because he's lost and he grabs the stopwatch and absolutely lobs it over, yeah. over a, a big pile of stones or something and Chris Harris just went good harm <laughs> and it's just I don't know why it made me laugh it's just because it is the kind of the kind of thing that just yeah. blokes bullshit. I quite enjoyed the bit as well where Chris Harris um Paddy McGuinness was driving he said stop stop your car's on fire your car's yeah. on fire and then Paddy McGuinness just stops and then realises his that's an interesting one because I was looking at that there's some bits in there where I was thinking now I am pretty confident knowing how whether that was written work, or that things are written yeah you know and there's a great case in point I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets to say that the bit where uh, Chris is in the car and he goes, you know, just muscle memory brings it all back. I think I could drive this thing blindfold. Cut to a challenge. It's like, yeah. now that's written because yeah. you're setting up a challenge. Someone's had to book that airstrip, get those props. This has all been planned in advance. And I don't think the viewer generally is 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 bothered by that too much. And I don't think, you know, I'm sure most people spotted that as an obviously set up bit. Um, but them trying to throw each other off in the challenge by, you know, your car's mm. on fire. I was like, it feels like that probably was just an in-the-field mm. thing. And whether they thought of it, whether... You know, because that's what... I used to go on shoots sometimes with Clarkson and Hammond and May. You know, part of my job was sort of in any situation like that. If I suddenly thought of something I thought might work, I'd sidle up to one or all of them and go, you know, lads, what if? And, and mm. it was just having another brain on it. They're all very good at thinking in the field as well. And Jeremy particularly, because he never stops. He's got a very restless imagination and just always wants to find a new angle and think of something new. And um, So it's hard to tell sometimes whether things, even sort of knowing how it all works and mm. having been there and experienced the sort of, the, the bits where, there's also the bits where sort of something isn't quite working out, but then it's lifted just by the presenters being on top form you know some of those challenges that's the thing I mean you watch them doing that thing on, on the new Top Gear and part of this they were just reversing cars around I think like a gravel pit on paper it's yeah. not it's not brilliant but that was a good sequence because they were really funny and there's a, a, there was an obvious competitiveness that again it felt unforced it mm. felt very real and I suppose part of it is whether you've written something down and when and I said this in my book, but you know, scripted can just mean one sheet of A4 that says, "Here's the opening challenge. Here's where we're going to go. Here's what we'd like to get out of this." There's going to come a point where you have to modify your cars. You know, those modifications are usually planned in advance. We might make them look like they're in the field, but mm. it's if you're in the middle of nowhere in somewhere you've never been before, you have got to make sure there's a workshop that you can get access to to do that. Yeah. So there's a bit of plan there, but. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a script, in inverted commas, might just be... This is the idea. A kind of, yeah, it's yeah. sort of... It's not a detailed recipe, and it's certainly not... It's not, um, you know, like a drama script or something, yeah, yeah. where it's every line is written out. I mean, we, we, we would only do every line is written out for those tests on the track. One presenter, they're reviewing a car. You have got to structure those. Yeah. They, they, they are... They don't work if you don't. The dog is now in a fit of peak. The dog is now pulling my garden apart. Honestly, why do we have you? Don't look. Oh my god! Look at that surface. Watch. Mind your own business. 
Um, yeah, so I, that's the thing. I, I'm probably I'm probably oversensitive to this sort of scripted slash unscripted allegation because you know the scripts were my department. But I, it, it's also it's just a slight frustration because I think that people's perceptions weren't in line with the reality of it. But you know, the point I made in the book is that almost all TV is scripted, mm. from the weather to you know new Netflix drama or yeah. it's all got something written down it's cameras running cameras with crews and stuff is very very expensive it's it's a brave producer that signs off to send crews into the field with absolutely no idea what anyone's going to do yeah and it usually results in shite unless you're doing a fly on the wall documentary and even then you know the sort of relatively recent genre of um well, the Americans always call it unscripted reality, which is anything but, you know. Sort yeah. Of, uh, uh, Very. Oh, they suddenly and stuff. They ha- happen to bump into each other on the yeah. same street. And it's it's like, oh. Yeah, or they're sitting in cafes and they're having that. And it's really funny because you know how that, that sort of genre of programme came to the UK? And you realise that British people just aren't as good actors as Americans. <laughs> and I used to think it's because we're just used to... American sounds more dramatic and interesting to, to British ears mm. but I don't think it is that I think Americans are just somehow better at you know it's in the same way that do you remember the first Austin Powers film there's a line where Liz, I don't know why I always remember this Liz Hurley has to say lock and load boys right and in her well-spoken English accent, it sounds fucking awful. That's <laughs> not an expression that any English person should ever say. It's just terrible. And if that line had been delivered by any American actor yeah. you can think of, you know, I don't know, Julia Roberts or someone, just, they'd, have, they'd have absolutely sold it. You'd have gone, yes, they will lock and they will load. <laughs> I believe you. But it's just some things that, that British people can't say. And I don't think that British people can... Uh, sell those unscripted reality things where they're sitting in a cafe going because the Americans it just feels like it could be a conversation and over here it's like real housewives of Cheshire or something and it's two very orange women going sir tell me more (laughs) about what happened with you and Dave and it's like I I don't believe a word of this apparently like on Love Island they have um which I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed about now because I've realised you listened to my Nick Helm podcast at the start. I said I've been watching Love Island. But um, <laughs> the, uh, um, there's apparently like PA systems throughout that, which isn't surprising. PA systems around the house that if like, if people are talking together and they just sort of go off topic and start talking about what their favourite like pasta is, yeah. they, they have like a producer over the PA going, get back to talking yeah. about the thing last night yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. That uh, a friend of mine uh, had a housemate who worked on um, the only way is Essex, right? And without the benefit of the PA system, but just in the room, we yeah. had to do the same job because apparently they used to just drift off topic and on some occasions, mm-hmm. like just fall asleep or something. They'd be having a conversation on the sofa, and then one of them would just nod off, like they they weren't capable of holding yeah. proper conversations without somebody basically with a stick going. Could you remember to discuss what happened last night in the nightclub? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, that's... But to that point as well, I, when people sort of say, oh, it's you know, Top Gear and the Grand Tour, it's, it's very scripted, it's like, oh, they're not that good at actors. You know, they're not bad at mugging for camera. And they're, they're brilliant yeah. presenters. They're great at you know, that sort of underrated skill of knowing how to deliver a line, which extends to voiceover as well. You know, I, I mean, they, the three of them, 
tremendous voiceover artists mm. knowing where to land emphasis and stuff in one take which is a skill and making it fit as well because it's yeah. very tight tolerances on those VOs that was something I noticed as well about um, the VOs on the new Top Gear show this mm. week is that Paddy McGuinness's voiceovers sounded like they just let him be naturally like yeah. Paddy McGuinness in the voiceovers it didn't sound too sort of forced in yeah. terms of it was just like oh right, Paddy you just you know mm. say it how you need to say it I used to supervise the voiceovers for for Tokyo and for the Grand Tour and quite honestly you know a lot of the time the presenters are pretty self-producing because they know mm. what's required but every so often you would have to you know you're sitting in the control room you've got a button to speak to them in the headphones in the soundproof booth and you'd have to do the, um, yeah, that was, oh, it's pathetic. You always preface it with, yeah, that was great. Yeah. Which is, in fact, a lie, because yeah. what you're going to do next is ask them to do it again, but better. Yeah. And, you know, just because it, it felt like the tone was wrong, or, or you know, you're trying to match the uh, tone or the, the, the level of the previous bit of Envision talking. Yeah. And you'd have to ask them to do it again. And, and I, I just used to hate doing it because it felt like you were basically going, yeah, shit. You were shit there. Which, knowing that they're not, and in fact, they'd done sort of the previous 50 lines incredibly well. You just had to ask them to do one more. But yeah, I, I didn't really enjoy having to do that. And it was rare. They were very good. They are very good at, at doing all that stuff. It's not, it's not the full um, thing, Toast of London. You've seen yeah, that, yeah. Clem Fandango. Yeah. With that, the, the yes line. <laughs> Do it more. Or uh, a director friend of mine once had to ask uh, the presenter Tiffany Dell if he could do a VO line again faster and more mysterious. Oh. And Tiff went, what? <laughs> what? I what that means? <laughs> There's nothing like to be a, a presenter being indignant in the booth. Yeah. Why are you telling me this? I don't understand. What? And then you take your finger off the button by accident, then you're talking to them, they can't hear you, and then they're just there going, hello? Hello? <laughs> voiceover booths are great places for hilarious shenanigans. So there you have it, Richard Porter. My thanks to Richard for taking part in the show. And please do come back on Friday of this week to hear the concluding part of my conversation with Richard Porter. Uh, So until then, thank you for joining me. I've been James Alban, and this is The Last Line.